tonight's class, we are moving out of uh, marital issues, marital challenges, and we're moving more into the parenting side of things. This is not intended to be a guilt trip for anyone who has actually raised children already. It's not tonight to record all your faults and flaws. That's not what this is about. It is to be an encouragement and a challenge and maybe a means of conviction as well at the same time. And always under the umbrella of knowing that God is sovereignly uh, good and he can interrupt our children's lives at any time. But we want to raise them for God's glory, and so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And of course, in our world, permission and love are equal, right? If you love someone, you just permit them to do anything. You certainly don't want to offend them. And to deny your children anything is considered cruel. Parents are considered oppressive, and teachers are feeding this kind of propaganda into the heads of children and teens. And the courts are even siding with children over their parents in cases of gender transformation and so on. So it's no wonder we have a lot of confused and discouraged parents in our culture. It's also no wonder that we have a lot of angry and confused kids and young adults in our culture who have very little, if any, respect for authority because they've never been raised that way. Well, I want to start tonight by uh, looking at just a few models, a few parenting models. And what we want to do, if you have kids, uh, just kind of look at these caricatures and see which one fits us or fits me. And maybe the best way to do that, because we all have wishful thinking, is to ask your kids which one you are at some point and see what they have to say. They might give some wonderful feedback, some truthful feedback. Who knows? Well, the first one is the protective parent. Let's see if I can get this going here. There it is, the protective parent, or what we like to call helicopter parenting, right? We hover. Don't let Jimmy fall, ever. We wrap them in bubble wrap. We don't want them to feel pain. We want to fix the child's problems at all times. If the child gets a low mark on a test, we want to talk to the teacher immediately and find out what's wrong and how we can fix the problem for our little Jimmy because Jimmy is so cute and needs all the help he can get. Don't ever allow the little guy to feel or work through that kind of pain or to fall and feel what it means to fail. Of course, the consequences are, first of all, you're denying the broken world that your child has entered and must survive in long after you're gone. There's a false assumption that pain and suffering are always bad. And usually this reflects more of the issues on the parental side than it does on the kid's side. A parent's anxieties that have never been dealt with and a lack of trust in God and the child never learns how to look forward and how to endure, right? That is the helicopter parent or the protective parent. And by the way, this one is, I think, especially hard for moms that raise boys. Because boys, by nature, want to step off the cliff. They want to take the risks. They want to look for adventure and challenge. And they want to be challenged. That's what they want. And 
Mothers don't always get that right away. It takes a little while to realize this is how boys are. This is what they do. The second one, the pandering parent. The pandering parent, or we might call them the lawnmower parent or the snowplow parent. And what do they do? They like to flatten every speed bump. Don't ever let Jimmy face a challenge. They mow down every obstacle. They don't ever allow the little guy to face it any kind of any kind of hurdle, hurdle that they have to overcome in life. And the child never learns to handle stress, never learns to endure and push through opposition of any kind. Any kind of resistance, they will. They're not prepared for it because they were never prepared for it. Uh, the third one, the permissive parent. This kind of goes along with our culture. Don't let Jimmy feel a negative emotion. Wait. He's crying. What will we do? This is the end of the world. And love is equated with permission. A lack of love is equated with the word no. You say the word no to your child, you do not love them. Or any kind of authority or discipline or restrictions. No, no, we need to permit little Jimmy to do what he wants to do. He needs to be able to express himself. That's what he needs. Child can never learn self-control or self-discipline this way. Never learns what it means to submit to authority or even the value of an authority structure. Child is unaware of any natural consequences in life. That is going to be a rude awakening at some point. And the child ends up resenting the parent who did not warn them of reality. Oh, what's the next one? Oh, the passive parent, the scarecrow parent. Who's Jimmy, right? This is the parent who's chasing other loves, other passions, and the child is left alone, unloved, unnoticed, and unheard. It could be a father chasing a career. It could be a mother chasing a career, or it could be either one chasing another love interest. It could be the parents absorbed in grief or stress. Quite often this can happen if there's a loss of another child or a loss of a loved one in the home. Other children get ignored in the absorption of that grief. And it could, could also be parents who are in the middle of a nasty divorce and the children are then weaponized against the parents. And they're being sent back and forth with messages between the two. And of course, the children are lost in the shuffle. There's no greater betrayal or of trust than two people who should love you the most turning their backs on you. The wounds in this case are very, very deep. Love, or something that looks like it, and security will be found elsewhere. It will be found in drugs, promiscuity, crime, gangs, and so on. And by the grace of God, it can be found in the gospel. We do know that. And then we have the powerful parent, otherwise known as the authoritarian parent. This parent is the drill sergeant. Jimmy, better do what I say. And that's all that matters, period. All rules and no relationship. There's no conversation. There's no communication. There's no feedback. There's no teaching. The home is controlled by rules. Because I said so is the response to the question, and that should be enough. Rules without relationship, Josh McDowell said, breed Rebellion, no instruction or teaching that helps the child grow in wisdom or critical thinking or just plain common sense is going to leave that child lacking in preparation for life. And children are not given any responsibility to make decisions based on their age and their maturity. They're not expected to grow up. 
They're just expected to follow blindly whatever orders are given. And the last one is the prudent parent. Yeah, this is where we're aiming tonight. Or what we might call the authoritative parent. Not the authoritarian parent, the drill sergeant, but the authoritative parent, kind of like a trainer or a coach who wants to instruct, wants to build up, wants to edify and encourage and correct and rebuke at times. Jimmy must learn how to live and love in a broken world. So boundaries and consequences are clearly established and enforced within the security of trust and relationship. Limited autonomy is granted in increasing amounts as maturity develops. Challenges and pain are accepted as essential aspects toward true character. This relationship establishes a sense of safety while not ignoring potential dangers. The brokenness of the world and the brokenness of self or the sinfulness of self are confronted realistically. Expectations and responsibility are granted to children as they grow, and wisdom is caught through experience. What happens? Independence is being cultivated through this process. Now, if you look back through all of these models, right from the helicopter parent to the snowplow parent and so on, you look through all of these models, which one fits you? Which one suits you? Which one would your children say is you? Which one is most biblical or most vertical in nature? Well, our plan tonight is actually to, first of all, we're going to look at the goal. What do, we, what do we want for an end product here? What are we aiming for? And then with that goal in mind, we're going to define and describe what discipline looks like, what true discipline looks like from God's perspective. And then finally, we're just going to try and understand what the priority of all of this is. What priority should this take in our lives? All right, so before we get into the goal, we're just going to ask the Lord to help us tonight. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together for this time, not only now with the teaching, but later on with our conversation, Lord. We just ask that you will be involved in all of this tonight, that you will be actually the leading us and guiding us, that it will be your Holy Spirit that is the teacher tonight, instructing us in truth, because it is your word. And Lord, we just ask that it would be spoken with your power and that we would be convicted, that we would feel conviction tonight, not condemnation, but conviction that leads us to, uh, to maybe change course or to be encouraged, whatever the need is in this room, Lord. We just ask that you would be ruling over all of this, and we thank you that you are our Lord and our Savior, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what is the goal? What are we aiming for? A few things that... Uh, just four actual items that I want to bring to mind that we're trying to aim for. We're not just looking for kids that have good manners. Well-mannered children, that's great, but it's incomplete. We're also not looking for kids that are just going to be successful, right? They can be, that's great to have as a goal, but again, it's incomplete. It's not enough, and it's certainly not biblical. Those are byproducts of the actual goal. The first goal is maturity. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We are in the business of developing the maturity of our children so that when they grow up, they can actually handle 
the situations of life. In fact, I remember five years ago, or four years, whenever it was, Pastor Aaron did uh, a couple, couple classes on raising teenagers, I think it was, and it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone say that parents are in the business of raising adults. I had never heard that before. And that's exactly what we're in the business of doing. It doesn't mean that we don't let them be kids, or kids be kids. It doesn't mean we don't let our kids play with Lego and so on, but we are actually preparing them to be adults in an adult world. Solomon was raising, and this is really the context of Proverbs, but he was raising the next king of Israel. And he's pleading with his son, listen to my instructions. Take heed to what I'm telling you, because this is where wisdom is found to run a nation, to govern a nation. There's a lot on the line. And by the way, we may underestimate as parents what is on the line and what we are actually raising right now. We could be raising the next generation of leaders. We are raising the next generation of leaders, leaders of homes, families, churches, businesses, and even governments. You ever notice that, I think, did I say it last week? I believe I did. But quite often the kings of Israel, it was their mothers that were mentioned in the Old Testament. His mother was so-and-so. They were raising kings. Can you imagine what's on the line? Well, obviously we know if you read through the narrative of the kings, you know some kings turned out very, very wickedly. Turned out very bad, and it led an entire nation down a certain direction. Can you see what's on the line here tonight with what we're doing as parents? We are raising a new generation of leaders, of people that are going to change the course or influence the course of culture if the Lord doesn't come back. Secondly, integrity. We have a goal of integrity, Proverbs 10.9. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. What is integrity? It's really the idea that what's on the inside is what you see on the outside. Blamelessness, innocence. We're raising children not to hide sin, but to confess sin. Not to be keeping guilty secrets. Children who are honestly and humbly chasing after holiness, that is God's beauty, because they are aware of their own sinfulness. We're raising children into adults who are going to have and be marked by integrity. Third, character. Hebrews 12, we're going to get back to Hebrews 12 in a little bit, but in Hebrews 12, the writer says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, healthy parental discipline should lead to a habit of self-discipline of self-discipline. You discipline your child so later on they will discipline themselves. They will understand that their choices have consequences. That's what we're leading them towards as children grow. This is true spiritually as well, right? Paul talked about this in Romans 5. He talked about the fact that when we become Christians, we are to grow and mature. He said not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Well, those sufferings, pain, The idea of discipline. Why? Because knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. And character produces hope. We're seeking to raise children with character. And the last one, number four, worship. We want to raise worshipers. 
Children that are marked by that pursuit of God. Westminster Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is all through scripture. It's the point of the gospel. It's the point of the Bible. It's the point of everything God has revealed about himself, that we would chase after him above everything else, that we would enjoy him above all else. We don't want to merely raise good living moralistic people who say please and thank you and pass the salt. No, we, we do want our kids to have good table manners, true, but we want to raise people who are worshipers of Jesus Christ and completely surrendered and sold out to God's design for their lives. And this requires the gospel to be at the center of our parenting. That's more on that next week. We're gonna look at that a little more, the spiritual aspect of raising children on the final week, but we need to remind ourselves of that tonight. What are we aiming for? We're aiming to raise gospel-centered young people that grow into gospel-centered adults and lead a new generation. That's the goal. That's where we're heading. So here's what happens, and this is just a helpful model that I found that I like, and I think it kind of tells the story, but from birth to adulthood, here's your span of time that we have as parents. Now that could be 18 years, hopefully it's not 40 years, right? Hopefully it's a little bit less than that, okay, if they're still in the house. You want them getting out of the nest, you know, getting on their own, becoming independent. Well, what happens? When they're born, when they're born, we have a line that looks like this, first of all, and it's the authority line. And as our children grow older, and over time as they mature more and become more independent, the authority line goes down further and further and further, right? So at, at birth, parents have all the authority over everything that they do, everything. Right? And it's enough just to say, no, mummy said so. The authority is absolute. But over time, you want to see that authority you, you know, start to pick up in their own minds. They're starting to train themselves. They're starting to learn these things for themselves. And what is growing at the same time that at birth is really not that much at all, there's another line, and it's the influence line. And what's happening that as they grow older, the authority is diminishing, but the influence is rising, and they're beginning to listen more to you. They know where to come for wisdom. They know where to come for counsel. They know where to come because they trust you, and they feel safe with you, and so on. And this is what we're looking at. So by the time they reach adulthood, we no longer have to tell them what pants to wear. We no longer have to tell them how to, to dress to go to church. We no longer have to tell them to comb their hair, brush their teeth. Hopefully by then they've figured all of that out. But what we do have is we have major influence in their life. We have a major voice in their life and they will come to us looking for that voice, listening to that voice and taking consideration of what we have to say because we've gained trust over time. This is what the model of discipline is gonna look like as we raise our children. This is what it should look like biblically over time. All right, so what is this discipline? What, what does it look like? This is where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time tonight. The first thing we want to know about discipline is the fact that you, as a parent, are an agent. You are an agent. Now, some people approach the subject of discipline and get very eager, right? They're overly positive about discipline because everything is about controlling your child. 
That's what we would call oppressive, right? And then you have other people who've been shaped by the culture right now who come to it with overly negative understandings. And, and it could be quite possibly because you experienced abuse in the past and you come to the word discipline and you say, ooh, that's bad. It's the equivalent of abuse. And so we want to run from that. We don't want anything to do with discipline. We don't want anything to do with authority. And that's called being permissive. Well, guess what? The first thing we learn when we come to Scripture about this subject of discipline is that God has made you a representative of his authority in your child's life. He tells your children in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. The New Testament's very clear in telling children to obey your parents. You are an agent in their life, an authority figure in their life, and it is for you, you are responsible to establish that authority in their life from a very young age. Genesis 18, the Lord was talking about Abraham, and he said about Abraham, he said, For I have chosen him, why? That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I've chosen Abraham to command his children and his household. It all started with one man given a command, a responsibility to carry authority over his children. And fathers, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but this is a command, it's apostolic, it's biblical, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is a command. Let's be straight. Discipline is not an option in your parenting model. It's not optional. To fail at this is to disobey God. To work this out is to submit to authority yourself. You have no other choice but to discipline your children and to raise them up in the fear of the Lord because the only other option is sin, is rebellion against God. We don't have a choice in this. You are an agent of the king. You're not allowed to fail at this. Your life is going to be examined someday by the Lord. And one of the first things, we'll look at this later with the priority, but with, with our priorities and where this stands in the priority list of your life, but one of the first things that will be examined is your family. And we'll get into that a little while later. Uh, let's see. All right, let's, let's work on the raw material. What is it that every child comes into the world with? Now, every child comes into the world with some very unique features. No two children are exactly alike. Angie and I have four kids, and I was asking them tonight at supper time to describe themselves, because I told them that I'm going to describe them for the class. I wanted to hear how accurate I was compared to what they thought. And uh, actually, this is quite accurate. This is quite close. In fact, kind of went around the table and, uh, you know, all the family got their say as to who is what and so on. 
But when number one came into the world, I also promised I wouldn't name them. When number one came into the world, she was quiet, a little shy. I still remember the day at McDonald's, she might have been seven or eight, uh, and telling her, you have to order your food. You want to eat, you got to order. You got to tell the nice lady over there what you want, and the, the look of horror. But that, that was her, quiet and uh, strong-willed. Strong-willed, you may be surprised by that. It's just a nice way of saying stubborn, actually. That's, that was number one, and focused. Very, very focused. Could leave her in a room and come back an hour later and know she'd still be looking at books in the room she hadn't moved at all. So somewhat, in some ways, it appeared easy, but it wasn't quite easy. That quiet, strong will was there. Then number two came into the world, and number two was the opposite of number one. Maybe not, well, determined, yes, but... You leave him sitting in one spot and turn your back for about two seconds and he will not be there when you turn around again. I remember there were days we turned around and found him up on, on his little tight truck over, hanging over the side of our above ground swimming pool, nearly in, and he was probably one and a half, two, somewhere in there. One day we heard a loud crash upstairs and went tearing upstairs to find out what it was. Well, he started pulling out the drawers in his dresser and was trying to climb it, I think. And it was a pretty big and heavy wooden, solid wood dresser. And that thing came down. And he was standing back in the corner. I have no idea how he got out from under it, but he got out from under it. And he was standing in the corner, eyes big as saucers, and uh, the drawers everywhere and the dressers face down on the floor. Or the night we came into a room, we were staying with some friends of ours, and we came into the room around midnight, and he's sitting on the floor in the middle of the room. Uh, well, no, his face wasn't full anymore, but surrounded by gum wrappers. Uh, he had to be, I don't know, he had one and a half, maybe, I don't know. He was just learning to crawl out or climb out of the playpen and the crib, and uh, surrounded by gum wrappers. He had found a pack of gum in his mom's purse, and he down the whole thing, all of it. Uh, that's just who he was. I, I remember particular times, him leaving the house. I, he was just always exploring. That was number two. The active, ambitious one, shall we say. Never a dull moment. Number three comes into the world, and he's maybe a little more caring, cautious, and an absolute first-class storyteller. He can tell you a story. Last night he told me all, basically the entire narrative of 1 Samuel and all that David went through. He can tell stories like no one else, and he was known as the caboose at school because he always had to be at the back of the line to make sure no kids were left behind. That's just who he was. And maybe with that came a lot more anxiety as well and a lot more worry. Uh, and number four comes into the world, and he's like a surfer dude. He's just chill, carefree, we could all be laughing at something and he's just doing his own thing over in the corner, whatever, I don't care. He's never laughing, which actually is quite funny. And, uh, and of course, he's constantly the, the joke himself, uh, but carefree, just don't care. In fact, to the point of, hey, can someone brush my teeth for me? 
you know, that kind of thing. That's the baby of the family. That's how it works. But each one is different. That's the point. They don't come with owner's, owner manuals, right? So parents with one kid, you don't have all the answers. You might think you know how to raise a kid because your number one was easy, but you don't have all the answers. We were very, very humbled when number two came along. And then humbled even more when number three came along, believe me. There's some aspects, though, that are true about every child. And we need to know what these are. Some parents might be overly positive about their kids. My kids are amazing. They're so talented. They're wonderful. They, you know, genius. Uh, what other descriptions? Generous, kind, respectful, obedient, and so on. And we want to brag on our kids. And that's okay to a point. But it's not very realistic. There might be other parents who are overly negative about their kids. My kid's an embarrassment. He can't do anything right, and so on. Makes me ashamed, which is sad. But what we really need to hear is what the designer has to say about our kids. And the first thing the designer has to say is that our child was made with purpose. Psalm 139, David says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Your child is made in God's image and with specific traits for a specific purpose. And your child is not your own. Your child is on loan from God. And your child was designed by God for a reason. Principle number two, your child is naturally bent, depraved, alienated or separated from God. On their own, they will turn away from God every single time. We heard about this on Sunday. Physically, there's nothing as clean and fresh as the smell of a newborn baby. Something so beautiful about a newborn baby and the smoothness of the skin and so on. It's amazing. But spiritually, the heart of that baby is already bent towards turning away from God every single time. Naturally, rebellious. Psalm 51, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We need to understand this about our children, that their God direction is broken. Their hearts are not neutral. Their upbringing, their environment, their circumstances, what happens to them is not the full determination of where they end up. It's not. They're broken, they're bent, they're naturally sinful. Principle number three, your child lacks wisdom in the real world. And this comes out in forms very quickly at a very young age. As soon as they can learn how to talk, it comes out in forms with the word no or I don't want to. In fact, even before they can talk, it's already coming out because you'll see them, they'll start to learn how to crawl and they'll crawl over towards the stairs, right? And mom will go and pick them up and say, no, and pull them back over, or maybe it's climbing a bookshelf or a dresser, and mom will say, no. And she might leave the room or just walk around the corner and watch what that little tyke does and what do they do? They look around. They don't even know how to speak yet. And they know how to rebel against mom and dad. It's in them. They lack wisdom. 
They want what they want, and they don't want what they don't want. There's no sense of self-control. There's no sense of consequences for actions. It's not there. Proverbs 22, folly or foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Because scripture just said what it is that puts wisdom into the heart of your child. The rod of discipline. Did you notice that? The proverb says there's a solution. It's discipline. And it comes in the form of pain. By the way, it's still legal in Canada. I'm actually surprised it is. But back, I think it was 2004, the Canadian Foundation of Children, Youth and the Law, a children's rights organization, brought an action uh, for declaratory, there's a word for you, relief to strike down Section 43 of the Criminal Code. The action was dismissed by the trial judge, but what they were basically saying is they wanted to criminalize spanking across the board. The trial judge said no, and in fact made it even more clear what was meant by spanking within reason, and uh, a lot of it, surprisingly, actually makes a lot of sense, uh, permissible between the age of 2 and 12, and uh, further that the section provided, uh, let's see, no defense to a parent or teacher who hit the child with an object, so he can't spank with a baseball bat, that kind of thing or on the head, um, basically in a way that is going to endanger the health or well-being of the child. It's very interesting that later on we'll, we'll look at this a little bit further, but I uh, want to bring it up now. And by the way, if spanking ever did become illegal, it doesn't matter. God tells you to. God tells you to discipline your child. It is a command from God. That is the highest authority. We obey God rather than men. Now, what is discipline? What does this look like? So, you have little Jimmy again from the, from the beginning who lacks wisdom, okay? Now, he earns $5, let's say, for cutting the neighbor's grass one day, and all he can think about are all the ways he's going to spend or blow that money, right? Candy, I don't know what you buy for $5, maybe a piece of bubble gum, I don't know, these days with inflation, uh, or dollar store toys that don't last out the door into the parking lot, he gets home with his $5 and proudly shows it to his dad. And his dad asks him for the $5 bill. And promptly takes it to the boy's bedroom and puts it in the boy's piggy bank to teach him how to be responsible with his money. From the boy's perspective, dad is punishing me. Dad is hurting me. Ouch! This is not fun. From dad's perspective, I'm teaching him. I'm instructing him. I'm providing wisdom for life to him. That's what I'm doing. Now, the, greatest, the best model we have for discipline is obviously how God disciplines his children, right? God is all-wise, infinitely good, and he disciplines us, and we have the chance. And I know just having raised kids, how much that has developed my understanding of what God does with his people, with his children, and how wise he is. Most of the time, I don't know what to do, and I'm asking the Lord for wisdom, but when it comes to God, he is patient with us. He's kind, and one of the best texts for this is Hebrews 12, 
uh, verses 3 to 13. So we're going to read them together and just have a look at what, how our heavenly Father disciplines us as his children. And the Hebrew writer says in verse 3, Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may know, not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here's what it says, and this comes out of the Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, that's a rhetorical question, very powerful today in our culture. What, what father would do this? Not discipline his son. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. We submitted to them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for just a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. To those who have been trained by it, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Discipline has a healing effect. And if you practice it in your home, you will know this, that that defiance in your children that says no, I want this. Discipline softens that. And over time, that persistent discipline takes that rebellion out of your child and replaces it with trust and with safety when it is applied correctly, not out of anger, not out of selfishness, but applied correctly as an agent of God in a position of authority to teach and correct our children. All right, so let's do a little observation of the text. What is it that the Hebrew writer is trying to teach us about discipline? Well, we're going to look at five different elements that are in this text about discipline. The first one is the idea of belonging, right? Discipline is for every son. By the way, I believe there's nowhere in Scripture where discipline is ever given to anyone other than parents of children. Obviously, there are situations where the guardian of the children is not the parent, and that is a situation very parallel to being a parent of a child, but discipline is put into the authority of parents, primarily. And it's true here. Basically, the writer is saying that if God disciplines you, it proves that he's your father and you're his child. You belong to him, you're in the family. It's actually a form of safety. It's an expression of love. I care about you enough. I'm not going to let you step off this cliff. I care about you not enough. I'm not going to let you continue in this rebellion and in this defiance. I am not. You are my son. 
you are my daughter. I care about you enough. I'm going to make sure that you face consequences for this. There's belonging in this. So there's a, a relationship. Discipline always, always has a relationship in view. Secondly, we have vision. We have vision. But later, well, right now it seems this is horrible. I hate this. I don't want to. Maybe you heard your parents say this. This will hurt me more than you. And you thought, yeah, right. I don't know how that's possible, but it's actually true. When you're parents, you understand this. It does hurt to discipline your children. It's painful. But, the writer says, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. Remember, we're trying to raise adults. We're looking for the long game. We're looking down the road. I know of times when I've had to discipline our children, and not just with a physical rod, but with a figurative rod as they get older. That rod changes in different ways, and that takes wisdom. There have been times where we've removed privileges, we've removed, you know, you lost your right to this, your right to that, and so on. Whatever it is, there are times when I've wondered, did I do the right thing? I, I, don't, I, I, I don't like seeing them in this consequence right now. I don't like seeing them suffer, but it's constantly that long game. No, I'm looking for the fruit that's coming from this. I'm looking for down the road what this is going to develop in their character. That's what we're looking for. Next in the text, we have pain. Discipline has to have pain. It has to. You say, why? If we just sit little Jimmy down and say, Jimmy, I need to explain to you why your rebellion is against God and it's not good, it's not going to be enough. Pain has a wonderful way of getting someone's attention very quickly. And especially when they're young, the terrible twos, the terrible threes, right? They haven't quite figured out everything about life. The idea of pain actually wakes them up. Whoa, dad's serious about this. Whatever that was, I don't want that to happen again. And they start to learn patterns from that. And God allows us to struggle. He allows us to feel pain. It's not always the reason for our suffering, but quite often it is. It exposes things in us that we didn't know were there. So pain is involved in discipline. It has to be. There has to be something that gets their attention. Not just something where they're going to shrug their shoulders, oh well, okay, I'll bear it. Well, that's what punishment would do. If it's just about punishment or about revenge or whatever, you know, this, you must have this punishment, okay. And then it does nothing, they kind of sigh, they work their way through it, oh well. I'm grounded, but I can play in my room, that's fine, I have toys in my room, that's okay. Then you haven't got their attention. It hasn't done its work. It's not going to do its work that way. The Hebrew writer talks about all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's the very nature of it. Next, it's a process. We are called to endure. Why? Because God is in the process of disciplining us. He's in the process of making something out of us. And he's consistent in that process. He's not this way one day and that way the next day and it all depends on your mood and and no, mom and dad, you cannot just discipline based on the mood you're in. Oh, mom's pretty happy today. I think we're going to get off on this one. No, that's not how it works. God is consistent. Discipline has nothing to do with our mood, has nothing to do with whether we're angry or happy. And we shouldn't discipline when we're angry. We should make sure that we are disciplining for proper reasons. Again, as an agent of God, representing God's authority. That's how we should be. But it is a process, and consistency and endurance are needed. 
Next, we have results. Discipline promises results or fruit. Now it's painful, but later it's peaceful. Well, that's a good result. That's why C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, one of his books, he said, we're not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art. That's what we are. Something that God is making. And therefore, something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that picture that has been so worked on, wishing if it had a brain, that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in just a minute. In the same way, it's natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and a less arduous destiny. But when we are wishing, C.S. Lewis says, but when we are wishing not, pardon me, repeat that, but then we are wishing not for more love, but actually for less. That's the kind of discipline that our Father has for us. It seems painful now. Sometimes it seems really painful. But in that pain, there is love involved. He is making us into a masterpiece. And it's not over in a second. He's not just scribbling on a piece of paper and saying, that's enough. All right, I'm moving on to something else. He's not doing that. He's taking his time with each one of us. He's consistent. He's patient. And he endures through the process of making us something glorious, making us like Jesus. That's what discipline should look like. So what are the characteristics of discipline? Let's list them out. The first one, obviously, is love. It must come from a heart of love. Whoever spares the rod, Proverbs 13, 24, hates his son. Let me repeat that again. Whoever spares the rod hates. See, that's a strong word. Yep, that's the word God used. Hates his son. But he who loves his son is diligent to discipline him. If discipline is administered properly, that is, with patience, with care, with instruction, with an acknowledgement, Jimmy, you remember when I said, don't take that cookie? Yes. Did you take the cookie? Yes. Did you disobey dad or mom? Yes, I did, right? That kind of care and acknowledgement, this is what I've done wrong. Then the discipline, right? And then restoration. Bring them back in. I love you. I love you. That's why I won't let this happen. Never discipline out of anger. Although, I will say this, just a, a little note. Anger is not the opposite of love. I've been angry with my kids at times. It's not because I hate them. It's because I love them. And I don't like what I'm seeing happen. I don't want to see them ruin their life. No, apathy is the opposite of love when I don't care. Secondly, patience. Proverbs 25, 15, with 
patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. <laughs> Kids are like little rulers, right? They think they rule their own life. I want what I want, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. Who is this big person to get in my way? With patience a ruler may be persuaded, a soft tongue will break a bone. Kids don't change their attitude or their hearts overnight, just like you and I in a sanctification process under the Lord's patient guidance it will probably take years. There has to be patience involved. Don't expect everything's gonna change right away. It takes time, it's consistency. Number three, instruction. See, communication is very, very key in this process. Proverbs 31, the end of the Proverbs, as the Proverbs close out, we hear the words of a king, King Lemuel. And he's speaking something that his mother taught him. And of course, we have the Proverbs 31 woman, the description that's given there. But there is instruction attached to raising children. Proverbs 1, 8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Discipline requires this. It's important to ask good questions and get to the root of why kids are behaving the way they are. Right? It's not just enough, okay, change your attitude. Yes, okay, wonderful. And maybe you can actually get them to submit and change their attitude. That's fine, but again, we're, we're looking for the long game. And the long game is, why is your heart the way it is right now? We'll deal more with the spiritual aspect of this next week, but this is very important that we understand that there, we, we need to learn how to ask good questions and get to the root of why the child, get to the root of the child, for the child's sake, that they understand why they're behaving a certain way. Controlling behavior is just temporary and incomplete. We can control our kids' behavior. That's authoritarian. We want them to understand why they're behaving that way and the root of it needs to change. Number four, consequences. Yes, again, spanking comes up, but there are other forms of this, and as children grow older, those forms may change, but Proverbs 23, 13 says, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. It's not the end of the world. You see, this is God's way of softening rebellious hearts. This is what he does. Consequences for, well, smaller transgressions spare a child from larger consequences for larger transgressions, like someday being arrested and thrown in prison. The consequences should teach a lesson. Quite often, you can follow through with a child just the consequences of their own actions. For instance, one night I was, just, I was downstairs uh, playing mini sticks with the boys, at number two, number three, and number four, and uh, as we were playing mini sticks, I noticed they kept looking at a wall, and my dad radar detected guilt. But I couldn't see what they were looking at. I didn't know what it was. So at some point I stopped and went, wait a sec, guys, what are you looking at? And I went over to the wall, and there were literal holes in the drywall, like through the drywall. Okay. Now I know nothing at this point. I will admit, I was angry. My initial reaction was anger. And boys, go upstairs, get your teeth brushed, pajamas on, get in bed. Prayed about it a little bit, 
okay, I need wisdom. What are we going to do? And uh, come upstairs a little while later. What I didn't know was they were playing a game earlier, didn't realize the damage they were doing to the wall, but they were doing damage to the wall. And it wasn't the only wall that had been damaged. Um, their mother had been talking about other chips and bruises and everything else in the walls in the basement. And uh, so I thought, okay, this is a good opportunity to teach them the reality of their choices. So we came upstairs and said, boys, this is what's going to happen. You are going to go to the store. You're going to buy drywall mud. You are going to patch this wall. You're going to learn how to do it. Never done it before. You're going to sand that wall. And their mother added, and you're going to paint it. And then we are going to inspect it. And if it doesn't pass inspection, you're going to do it again. If it does pass inspection, well, then maybe you can get some electronics back. But until then, no electronics. You must fix what you broke. And of course, that night, there was a little bit of drama in the house. A little bit of, we can't do this. We, we're not able to do this. And it just a constant, like, this is like Cain, uh, right? This is more than I can bear kind of thing. And, no, it's not. I will admit, I was a little... I, I was a little doubtful as to how this was going to turn out. But I still remember, we went to the store. They bought it with their money, by the way. They used their money to buy the drywall mud, came home, and they got patching the wall, and I was showing them how to do it and everything. Somewhere in the course of this entire process, I hear one of them say, this is kind of fun. I'm kind of learning something here. Like, yeah. And by the end, they were actually proud of their work what they were able to do, all of that from an opportunity that came out of discipline. Listen, if your kids shoplift, this also happened in our home more than once, with more than one, you march them back into that store to the manager of that store and have them give back what they stole or what they took and confess what they did. That's a wonderful learning opportunity. Again, teaching them with reality the consequences of their choices. Don't let them off the hook. Don't plow the way for them. Don't make sure you mow the grass so they don't trip. No, let them feel some pain so that they don't feel pain down the road on a more intense level. Next, it takes wisdom. You see, you've got to make sure, we have to make sure they get the point, that they learn the lesson. When they're young, when they're small, a little bit of physical pain, they learn a lesson. They're very quick to pick up on how the world works around them. Very quick to understand, if I do this, this happens. That's why consistency is important. They learn that. Proverbs 5.1, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Wisdom is knowing the best means to the best end. That's what wisdom is. It's knowing what to do. We're trying to teach them that. This is why it's important to know the goal. What are we wanting out of our kids? What are we driving toward? True discipline requires time to think and pray for wisdom in instructing a child effectively. Every child is different and will respond differently to certain punishment. They just will. We had one child that spanking didn't do much for him at all. We had other children, you could look at them and they would wilt. They were just like, oh, it was, 
it was over for them. Didn't take much. They were all different in different ways, and it takes wisdom to know exactly what to do to teach them, to get their attention and help them to understand, don't do that again, whatever that is. It's going to take wisdom to do that. Number six, consistency. I've already mentioned this a couple times, Proverbs 4.10. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you, repeatedly taught you, the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction, do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Inconsistency will breed disrespect. If consequences happen for this today, but don't happen for this tomorrow, it will breed disrespect. They just won't submit to your authority because you're trivializing it. Make sure the boundaries stay consistent. The fence is the fence is the fence. Now, you may at some point recognize you're in error, whatever that fence is. You may recognize, you know what, I was wrong about that. I think I was wrong. And it's okay to go back. Don't be afraid to tell your kids if you're wrong. Don't be afraid to ask for forgiveness if you've treated them a certain way. That actually builds trust. I know when our kids have come to us with different things, I actually have very little fear of my boys looking at pornography. I'll tell you, whenever they're watching YouTube, they watch YouTube a lot, but whenever they see some inappropriate advertisement or something come up on the screen they weren't expecting, they always come and tell me. And one of the reasons they do that is because we've always kept communication open, especially about sex. But I have told them about my own sin and temptations in the past that I've had to battle. I've been very open with them. And I've also told them the consequences of those things. I've been very clear with them, not to glorify it, not to brag about it, not to be like, oh, well, it's okay, because daddy did it. Not that, but to actually emphasize the consequence. This is how it messed me up. This is how I need the, needed the grace of Jesus to heal me, and it took a long time. And this is how it actually hindered my relationship with your mother, right? And Teaching them those consequences from my own life has actually opened up communication with them. I really have very little fear at this point of them hiding things from me because those lines of communication are open. We need consistency. We need to, or we need to be consistently teaching them and being willing to say, hey, I messed up here. I made a mistake here. Will you forgive me for this? Don't be afraid to tell your kids that. Also, it just develops trust in the relationship, and it develops a heart in them to obey and submit. I had this experience just today. Something came up. Um, I, I think it was more unwitting with uh, one of our kids. Didn't realize uh, the, the damage that was caused by, or that could be caused by something he had done, so I just made him aware and said, this is what you need to do to change it, and he submitted. Um, okay. There was no fight. There was no argument. Um, and, and a lot of that comes from building trust over time, consistent trust. And it starts when they're young. The more you stand up to your little two-year-old and say no, when that authority line is at the highest peak, right, the more they learn to trust you along the way. And as that authority starts to taper off, 
and the influence starts to rise, you're speaking into their life, they're listening, they're saying, okay, Dad, may not like it, might be a little frustrated by it, but okay, Dad, I trust you. And, or okay, Mom. And those lines of communication are open because there's consistency and there's honesty. There's a willingness to admit failure. Number seven, endurance. Don't give up. Proverbs 15, 20, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Endure. By the way, it's never too late. That's why I said at the beginning, I don't want this to be a guilt trip tonight if your kids are adults and you say, oh, this is just a way of me knowing every possible way I went wrong. That's not what this is about. This is about looking at the biblical model. But if it's the case, again, going back to don't be afraid to share mistakes, there's nothing wrong with going to your teenage kid or your adult son or daughter and saying to them, you know what? Here's a few ways we think we've made some mistakes with you guys, and I just want to ask for your forgiveness. You may open up lines of communication you didn't realize were even possible. God's grace is very, very powerful. But endure. Endure to the end. A wise son, growing up, makes a father glad, makes a father very happy. Of course, a foolish one despises his mother. Can't think of anything more painful for a mother than having a rebellious child who is turned away. There are moments that will break your heart and seek to break your spirit. There will be sleepless nights. As parents, we all have them because as they grow up, we get less and less control. There are days that leave leave us with nowhere else to turn but God's sovereign goodness and wisdom. But don't give up. Endure. Get up tomorrow and do it again. Continue to lead your family men. Lead them. Be engaged when you come home from work and you feel tired. But just as Jesus served us, we serve those who are first in our life. Our wife, our children, we sit down, we talk with them, we watch what they're watching, ask them questions, just enter their world. That's what we do. Enter their world. Speak to them. Gain that communication and that relationship. It takes endurance. There are going to be days you're going to want to give up. But the long game, a wise son makes a glad father. Okay, what is the priority of all of this? I just want to note this at the end. Where is this on the list of priorities for God? Well, Raising your family for God's glory should be and must be your first priority in ministry. If your family's not being managed correctly, then other areas of your life will not be managed correctly. And Paul makes this very clear to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 when it comes to selection of leaders in the church. And one of the things he says about leaders or elders in the church or elder pastors in the church is that he must manage his own household well before anything else. Before he leads the church of God, he must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. That means he's practicing discipline, he's an agent of the king, he's the authority figure that has been established in his children's life. He's keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, Paul says, how will he ever care for God's church? 
It's true for deacons as well. For those who are working in the practical ministries of the church, even in leadership roles of the practical ministries of the church. Paul says to Timothy about them, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. So in other words, if you do a bang-up job in ministry at the church, but your home life is a total wreck, then you've got your priorities mixed up. Because the first ministry that we need to make sure we are managing well for the glory of God is is our children, is our home. And how we are practicing that or establishing that authority and that discipline in our homes. All right, well, do I need to introduce our guests tonight? (laughs) If you don't know who they are, we are grateful to have Pastor Aaron and Susie with us tonight. And um, uh, we might as well jump right in immediately and just get a little bit of a perspective of your expertise and where you've been with your experience, uh, your perspective with raising kids, how many kids, uh, what ages they're at, uh, what stage of life uh, you're currently at with parenting. Okay. You want want to take it away? Okay. So we've been parents for almost 24 years. We have five children and they're um, mostly adults now. Four of the five are adults officially and three of them are married. And it's absolutely crazy how quickly that happens Mm -hmm. because when they're young, you're so focused on attending to their needs and nurturing them and caring for them and trying to get enough sleep and nutrients yourself. And then just like that, in a moment, they're starting to move out of the house and get married. So it goes by very, very quickly, but it's been an absolute joy. So our oldest, uh, like I said, is almost 24. He's been married for almost three years. And then we have uh, one that's 22. She just turned 22, married for about eight months. Another one that's almost 21, and he is also also married for almost one year. And then we have an 18-year-old going on 19 and a 17-and-a-half-year-old. So she's the only one that's officially still... uh, a child, not an adult, and she likes to remind me of that. She reminded me of that recently, that I have her for eight more months before she can do her own thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. It went by very quickly in a, in a flash. It seems like we're just trying to figure things out, and then they're 18 and 19 and mm. moving out, and you're like, wow, like I just got things figured out. Can we do this again? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that's what I was going to say. I don't know if you have anything else to add, Aaron. Yeah, that pretty much covers it. They're all, the ones that are married, all married um, strong Christians. So we have uh, two daughter-in-laws and one son-in-law, and we're also delighted to be able to speak into their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a wide range of experience. It's good. Mm. So how old would you have been when you had your first child? I was uh, just a couple of months before I turned 23, so I was pretty young. Okay. I was 18, I'm five years younger than her. (laughs) (laughs) And then how old would you have been when you had your last child? 29. Okay. It was my goal to have hmm. all my kids before I turned 30, yep. Yeah, so I would have been 25. (laughs) (laughs) 25 when we had Josiah and 31, I guess, when we had uh, Abby. So what were some of the challenges you would have faced initially when raising your children when you were younger? Well, I, I think like every new parent, you have no idea what you're doing. 
you've seen other people holding kids, you've maybe walked by the nursery a few times, but you have no idea what you're doing. I mean, I, I think I might have changed one or two diapers, you know, before Josiah showed up. So you're, you're learning to feed them, you're trying to figure out how durable they are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're uh, trying to get into a bit of a, I think Susie is, but I'm probably more of a routine guy. So when, uh, for our first three kids, so Susie worked full time for a couple years and we were, when we were first married, and so did I, and then um, she, she would stay home six days a week for the first three kids, and she would work one day a week, and then I would tend to the children on my day off on Monday. And uh, just getting into that routine, you know, trying to figure out how much to feed them, uh, trying, to, trying to figure out are they, are they just being brats right now or do they have a legitimate need, <laughs> yeah. um, getting into to schedules and all that. So when they're, when, when they're really little, I mean, those of you that have children know, it's, it's, it's pretty intense. And then, of course, they start to walk and they start to talk and then the relationship changes and moves forward from there. I don't, I don't know if I found it especially difficult. I mean, you just sort of adapt just like every other new uh, thing that you learn in life, whether you're learning to drive or take care of your own house or whatnot. I wouldn't say I found it difficult, but it does take a lot of mental energy because you're, you're, you don't want to miss anything. You don't want to miss parent. You don't want to have too many regrets. We all have some regrets, yeah. but you don't want too many regrets. So I think it's just that that adaptation. Obviously, you learn to live on less sleep. Um, Susie breastfed, so you know she would be the one getting up in the night. I remember as a young dad, I baby came home and Susie jumps up because the baby's crying, and so I would jump up, and then I realized I don't have the equipment. Why am I up? <laughs> so better for me to get a good night's sleep so Moral I can support. counsel her the next morning. Moral yeah. support, exactly. Well, for me, it was probably a very different experience. I remember the first night that Josiah was born, I actually didn't have him with me because he had swallowed some acomiums. They had him in a uh, incubator. So the next morning, it was about 11 o'clock, and I'm like, well, when do I get to see my baby? I've never done this before. It was really weird. And so they brought him over to me, and that day it was fine. But the very first night in the hospital, I remember him crying and crying and crying. And uh, it all started from there crying, 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 which brought me back to memories when my mom had a, um, when I was 13, my mom had another baby, and this baby cried and cried and cried a lot, and so immediately you remember that stress, and then there was a nurse that came into the hospital room, and in a nasty way said, you're never going to be able to feed him enough with just your breast milk, and that set in the fear that what if I can't provide enough for my baby? And so I brought him home, and sure enough, he continued being a fairly fussy baby, and I always, in the back of my mind, had this fear, I don't have enough milk for my baby, and so I was trying to figure out, is, is he getting enough? Is, is that why he's crying? Why is he crying? Why is he grunting in his sleep? And so for me, it was quite a shock to my system, both the, the fear of of raising him, am I doing all that I can? Am I providing enough for him? And then also just the sleepless nights. Uh, I remember with him especially, he, he grunted a lot in his sleep. He wasn't a, a, a restful baby. And so I would lay awake 
all night long, listening to the grunting, thinking, should I get up now? Should I, should I feed him? What should I do? And uh, of course, if you don't sleep for many nights, you tend to have a little bit of mental, emotional uh, stress that goes along with it. So definitely lots of emotional stress that was super hard and, and then feeling like a failure because I, I loved children, I had always enjoyed them, I, I was super excited about being a mom. Obviously being a mom is one of the biggest blessings that God can ever give to you and here I was an emotional mess because I wasn't sleeping, I was overwhelmed, I didn't know what I was doing, didn't feel like I could provide enough, and so I felt like I was a failure, I felt like I was a failure, a disappointment to Aaron, and yeah, so that was my start to, to, to mothering, and as much as I loved being a mom, loved my baby, it was super overwhelming. And I would say for me, in all honesty, I'm, I'm not meaning this in a humorous way, but we were in ministry already. I was used to counseling people. And after about 48 hours, I ran out of things to say to my wife. It's <laughs> like, I don't, I, don't, I don't have any other advice for you. Yeah. So when she was having those, those tough, tough days, um, you know, it was difficult in, in some respects, as much as it was fun to have kids. It was difficult because there's a certain intensity to your emotions when you, as she described, felt a little inadequate, yeah. when, um, when you don't have enough sleep, you're naturally gonna experience some yeah. highs and lows. So those, those were things, this is a young dad, I, I, I didn't f maybe fully understand why certain things would get her worked up that didn't work me up, but I wasn't the one feeding the child. I wasn't the one up, up in the night for the most part. So those are unique challenges. I think for many years too, when you, when you have, ch we were married for about three years and then had kids, so we were always available for one another, but then you start throwing a bunch of kids into the mix and it really does split your, your attention, your ability to, to give and to receive. So you have to sort of endure through that and be a bit more strategic about your communication and your time together as a couple. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Do you remember the first diaper we changed? It took two of us. It did take two of us, yes. It was that bad, uh, eh? It was that Weird. bad, <laughs> that uh, unfamiliar. I was actually not a baby person. Like, so I trained as a nurse, you know, did all my education, but had my own child, and I was like, I have no idea what to do. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. So Aaron, you're trying to be your wife's pastor in a sense or support, right? But yeah. where did the two of you as a young couple turn for mentoring or support through that time? And then just as your kids got older, obviously you enter different stages of raising children <clears throat> that need a whole new set of uh, principles or rules or wisdom. Um, where did you turn? Did you have mentors? Did you have people you could turn to that had already been there that uh, could speak into that for you? So I would say we, d we didn't have formal mentors, but I've always been an advocate of looking ahead to the couples that are a little yeah. older than me, no matter what age I'm at. Mm -hmm. I do that now too, because for us now, I, I think we're adjusting to it, because like Susie said, Josiah's been married for three years. 
But I remember when I, when I got my first daughter-in-law, and I'm like, how does this work? Mm. How, what does that relationship look like? And now three of the kids are married, and I would say for about a two-year period, I was always trying to figure out, okay, I know how to interact with my kids. I know their personalities. I know their strengths, their weaknesses. I'm now trying to get to know my daughters and son-in-law. And uh, so I would, I would observe older couples. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't necessarily even know I was observing them. Mm-hmm. But I would observe them and just see how they interact with their, their daughter and son-in-law. So the same when, when we had little kids, I would observe couples that are just yeah. a little bit older than us. At the time, we weren't in this church. We were in another church. There were, there were some young couples, but there, there weren't that many. It was a much smaller church. Um, and then I would just say noodling through it, you know, thinking through the issues, praying, having conversations, knowing that some aspects of life are beyond your control. You just got to push through them. And, uh, and then also making sure that we were more intentional about our time together as a couple. So one of my friends at the time, he gave me a great piece of advice. I was out for lunch with him, and he said, um, we were just talking about feeling like I didn't have enough time with my wife because we had kids and whatnot. And he said, Aaron, your week is essentially divided up into 21 sections. You have seven mornings, seven afternoons, and seven evenings. Using the Sabbath principle, make sure that you identify at least three out of 21, or one out of seven, where you can have a bit more intense, direct time with your wife. So we just kind of sat down and we said, okay, we're gonna circle this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whatever. And uh, those were times when we, we tended to de- debrief, talk about things in, in a more deliberate way. You're always mm-hmm. talking, but in a more sure. deliberate way. And I think that, for me, that was very helpful. Yeah. And then, of course, just plain old experience. The, the more months go by, the more kids come, you, yeah. you just become more and more comfortable with what it takes to raise kids. The shocker is your first kid. If you don't have kids yet, the shocker is your first kid and your third child, because then you're outnumbered. Yeah. <laughs> Two wasn't so bad, because when we go out, she'd take one, I'd take one. But when you get three, then there's this, because we had our five kids in six and a half years, so they were all pretty dependent and close. And uh, when you take them out, you're like, okay, we, we have an extra, extra stroller now or some other child to carry. So that's, that's definitely a, a, a dynamic that yeah. uh, we yeah. felt. Yeah, it's funny. I think Andrew and I have, you found two was overwhelming, right? That was the hardest step. For me, it was the three. But okay. I think probably because you were home. Yeah, and we have four years between ours. That's so it true. almost felt like yeah. we were out of all those stages and okay. then just bam, and then so different <laughs> than our first. How do we change that diaper again? Yeah. yeah. That's true. yeah. I think for us, the third one was hard to not, he was a, he, he was a good baby, but it was, uh, we were just beginning to plant this church. So first of all, we had three kids under three when he was first born. And remember, I, I don't do well with sleepless nights over and over and over again. So that was about three years of not sleeping well. Actually, no, I shouldn't say that. Casey was a pretty good sleeper. But uh, we were just starting the church plant. And so Aaron was working full time plus planting a church. And I had three babies under three for the first little while, then Josiah turned three. So incredibly busy, intense, tense times. So number three was definitely hard, not because of the kid, but because of life circumstances for us too. I think that made a difference. For myself, as I'm thinking about mentors, 
I would say, and maybe this is typical for women, you get some really great women, and then there's some really bad advice <laughs> because there's so many opinions, yeah. not necessarily biblical opinions, yes. uh, the ones that are telling you biblical advice, that's all great, but strong opinions. If they slept or if they train, did the sleep training with their kids, then that was the only way to do it. That was like your answer to all life's problems. <laughs> if they breastfed, this many times as for this many years in these locations, then that was the way to do it and you had to do it, otherwise you were a failure. And so in that sense, it could be conflicting because you're trying to listen to all this advice and they seem to know what they're doing and here I'm struggling, so you're trying to figure it all out. Finally, you just realize, you know what? Like, I have God's word and I have the spirit inside me. I know what feels right and what is right and what doesn't. And when I'm trying to follow up other people's opinions against my own conscience at times, because that was the right thing to do at that time, it didn't feel good and it didn't work out. And so you just realize, yeah, you want to take the advice and, and wisdom from women who have gone before you, but in the end, you look to God's word and your own spirit and you know the right way to raise your children and you trust in the Lord. And so I had to learn to discern that and to realize I don't have to listen to all this conflicting advice. At the same time, I do remember, like, especially with Josiah, I had a couple of women that were, they, their kids were just a few years ahead of mine, and, or Josiah at the time, and they were just so understanding and caring and they really helped me through those first few years. And then as, as time continued, I would say being part of a women's Bible study was absolutely life-giving to me because it, it kept me in God's word consistently and it kept me fellowshipping with other women consistently. And that's probably one of the reasons why I have such a strong passion for women's ministry and women's Bible studies in particular right now because they're just so, uh, so valuable in both your relationship with the Lord, but also connecting and fellowshipping in a biblical way with other other women. Yeah, so, you, oh, sorry, you are gonna say. I was just gonna say, we, we also had, um, we moved to Windsor in 96, so we had no family down here. And we would sort of envy couples that had their parents close by. We didn't have that. Like, our parents were two hours away. My mom lives in this area now, but at the time she didn't. Um, so we, we, we did feel a little alone at times in terms of family support, but, you know, again, that's life. Sometimes that's the way things work out, and uh, you, you just adapt to those situations, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was all worth it. You know, the kids, the kids have done well, and we're su super thankful for them. Yeah. yeah. So, Susie, you brought up um, certain ways to do things. So here's a question probably for Pastor Aaron, I don't know. It's, it's somewhat of a biblical question, but someone has asked the, uh, whether or not uh, when the Bible speaks about spanking or, or the rod, I guess, um, is this something you must do? Is this one of those ways that you must raise your child as far mm -hmm. as uh, spanking goes? Is spanking necessary? Mm -hmm. Well, um, discipline, as you mentioned in your teaching, is necessary, mm -hmm. and I would say that when you assess a child's development, let's say you've got a one-and-a-half-year-old or two-year-old that's acting up, 
having a meaningful conversation is probably not going to be well received. No. So at, at certain stages, I think, I, I'll call it a kinesthetic response, is an appropriate way to discipline a child who's very young. Mm -hmm. So I used to call it bum button. I would say to the kids when they were little, here's how it works. When you do something stupid, your brain's not working, I'm gonna turn it back on. I'm gonna hit the bum button, and that's gonna turn your brain back on, and then you're actually gonna listen and pay attention to what we're doing. Sp the goal of spanking is not to inflict pain. Mm -hmm. The goal of spanking is to shock the child in a kinesthetic way yeah. back into reality. And so it's not as though I would say to someone, oh, if you don't spank your child, you're somehow living in sin. I would suggest that maybe you're not as aware as you should be of child development. Mm -hmm. There's certain, th when I was a little boy, and I was, some days I was a good kid, some days I was a bad kid, and someone grabs your arm and kind of gives you a little shake, there's something very effective about that mm -hmm. to kind of yeah. get your attention and bring you back to. So I would say that if you're spanking your kid at 10, 11, 12, you're probably not doing a really thoughtful job of discipline. Mm -hmm. We tended to spank our kids when they were very small. Yes. And again, the way I thought of it is it's a way of sort of startling them and bringing them back into reality when they're not at a point yet where having a meaningful conversation is particularly effective. Yes. So no, I wouldn't say you're, you're sinning, but I'm, a, I'm kind of an advocate of following biblical patterns as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And you wanna be careful, obviously, when you're in public. Uh, we would have ways of disciplining our children when they're very little in public. For example, if one of the kids was acting up in a store and they're really, really young, I wouldn't give them a swat because I'd you know, be concerned about what people, I'd put my, hand on them like this, and I'd put my hand over it, and I'd pinch them. And I would say, you better cut it out, or you're gonna be in deep trouble when you get home. And I would apply a little bit of pain. And that would be an effective way of yes. rattling their cage. Later on, you know, whether it's, um, whether it is uh, the removal of privileges or fines. So one of our kids, this might seem a little extreme to you, but it was very effective. Um, one of the things I can't tolerate is when a child does the same, commits the same crime over and over and over and over again. I've, I've said before in my preaching ministry that I don't, I never permitted my kids to say no to me. Just for, we didn't allow it. You don't say no to me. But kids will still disobey you, and sometimes they'll disobey you habitually. So I would say, you know what, this is a waste of my time. We've had this conversation, we've had it again, we've had it again, we've had it again. And at some point, frankly, I'm a busy guy. I don't have time to continue to have the exact same conversation with you over and over again. So I remember one of the kids would, would use uh, towels, come out of the shower bath, and throw it on the floor in a pile, over and over. And this went on and on and on. And I, I felt, you know, my blood starting to boil. So I just said, you know what, the next time you do it, you owe me 200 bucks. Yeah. I'm gonna drain your account. Well, sure enough, a few weeks later, the towel's on the ground. I said, e-transfer me 200 bucks. Never happened again. <laughs> Never happened again. It was an extreme punishment, but I knew if it was 20 bucks, yeah. it wouldn't work. If it was a third, fifth conversation, mm -hmm. it wouldn't work. So I'm like, we're ending this now. Yeah. You owe me 200 bucks. Yeah. And sometimes you have to go maybe beyond what you even feel comfortable with, because I felt as a father actually bad about taking mm -hmm. his money, 
I think I ended up taking them out for dinner or something with it. But um, I felt bad about it, but I felt it was worth it to do something dramatic that that child would not forget and that problem was resolved and the point was made. Yeah. So there's, there's different ways of uh, disciplining a child depending on you know, their age, but I do think when they are toddlers, mm -hmm. kind of maybe even pushing up to kindergarten, there, it is quite effective to get physical with them. Yes. Yeah. I think that's what we've found too by experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> he's bringing up out in public, just reminded me a, a week ago I was running down the path by here on church and I come around a corner and I see a mother and her children and two of the boys, I don't know what they were doing. Well, I do from what she told them. <laughs> but I watched, she turned to the one boy and she says, bend over. And she gives him a swat and his tush and then she told the other boy, bend over. And she gave him a swat. That's what you get for fighting, you know. But it was out in public and I thought, okay, I'm, congrats for doing that. Yeah. You know, disciplining your kids. It wasn't in anger, it was very, you know, just in the moment, teaching a lesson. Yeah. They, were, they were young, but it wasn't public, and she has no idea who I am. And I was very visible, you know, and uh, who I could, you know, what I could have done potentially with that, being a witness to. Yeah. So, so what, one piece of advice that comes to my mind, because I, I think I, if I were to guess, because I've been asked that question before by parents, and as I've observed how parents discipline their kids, a lot of it's actually tied to your personality. Mm -hmm. So if you're more of a passive, soft-spoken, very kind, you know, slow, slow to anger kind of person, and if your kids happen to be cut from that same cloth, yeah. you know, you're probably going to parent different than someone who's hot-headed. But it's really important for us to not deny our personalities, but to learn to parent based on principles yes. rather than our personality. So principle-centered parenting based upon the Word of God and the, the collective wisdom of God's people mm -hmm. is where we all want to push ourselves um, rather than, well, I was spanked, so I'm going to spank my kids. Mm -hmm. Or I wasn't spanked, or I don't feel comfortable spanking, or I don't feel comfortable charging a fine, so I'm not going to do that to my mm -hmm. kids. It's better to be a principle-centered parent and, and explore Scripture and talk to their wise parents about how to discipline rather than... Um, you know, just picking the stuff that you like or don't like. Because while I was willing to spank yeah. my children, I would say probably 70% of the time I didn't want to. Right. But I felt it was necessary as I discerned the circumstances I was yes. in. Yeah, and that brings up a point about not doing it to humiliate the child either, right? Yes. Um, so privacy is key. Yeah. In how to discipline. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that, that it's, it is key... Uh, many of the things we've already talked about is it's a, it's a matter of getting their attention. Um, mm -hmm. And we, we know that just from the four that we have, some of them, depending on the strength of the will, you don't yeah. want to crush their spirit, but you do want to gain their submissiveness. Mm -hmm. and uh, They need to understand who's in authority, right? So it was different. Some of them, you could just look at them and they would right away know, oops, I'm in trouble. Um, and others, it took a little more than that. We actually had one of ours that uh, any kind of 
Physical discipline did not work at all. He just did not care. It didn't phase him. But putting him in his room by himself was like death to him. You got his attention right away. And uh, that was what worked, we found with him. And it changed his whole attitude. Mm-hmm. So it is a matter of it, wisdom is involved. Yeah. yeah. So Susie, kind of going back to what you had mentioned before about <clears throat> um, getting advice from others, but really going to the source, the Word of God. So do the two of you have like a specific biblical text that helped you, like you would turn to with instruction for your children? Um, well, there's a couple of verses that I was thinking of, certainly when they were young, uh, a verse that I would often say, even though it wasn't specifically for parenting, was, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, just knowing that God had given me these children, and so he's not going to make it so difficult on me that I can't do it. He's going to provide me with the strength. And certainly, often just using um, James 1.5, right, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him come to God. And such a reminder, I, I often didn't know what to do, but he would give me that wisdom. And, and then something that really impacted me when they were teenagers, because all my kids had make, made a profession of faith, they were living for the Lord, they were serving in the church, I knew they were genuine believers, was um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think Aaron might have shared that verse with me um, when one of our children in particular was actually going through a, a, a bit of a, a spiritual challenge, something that we hadn't really faced before. And you're thinking, like, what in the world is my kid going to do? Like, where, what's happening? And just that reminder, because I knew this child was, was born again, remembering that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I trust myself, even though I know I still fail and I still struggle spiritually, that... I have the fear of the Lord in me, and therefore I also have to trust that God's going to work in this child, and yes, I need to implement wisdom and direction and guidance, but in the end, the Spirit of God is also working in this child's life, and that's so comforting and so freeing because we can't be with our children 24-7, and particularly um, the little diagram about the influence, like the influence goes up, but the authority goes down as they get older and so that can be hard to let go but when you know that God is working in their life and he is still convicting and giving them wisdom it just frees us up from having to feel like we need to control them mm-hmm. I, I would say for me Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6 the latter of which yeah. quotes from the former but Deuteronomy 6 is a wonderful passage because it basically it's like when you go into the land always talk about God with your kids, whether you're on the way, by the gates, wherever you are, just integrating your faith into every aspect of life, I think is something that many Christians have never actually thought about. They have their Sunday morning life, they maybe have their prayer before dinner life, and then they don't necessarily translate their beliefs into the, the, the decisions they make, the conversations that, yeah. that they have. So. We never really did formal family devotions because we were always discussing biblical matters. We were encouraging the kids individually to read their Bibles, but we would, we would have conversations around the table, in the backyard, when we're driving to church. We're just always talking. I'm not saying that we're always like, hey, what's your favorite verse? What did you learn from God's Word today? 
but we're always integrating our Christian worldview into the conversations we had with the kids. The way, the way we expected them to, to handle their money was a biblical view of money. In fact, I'll tell you this, because most people enjoy it when I, when I throw this story out. When Josiah was eight and a half, our oldest, he got his uh, penny saver route. Remember when there was penny savers, you'd, you'd deliver them? So he would deliver so many penny savers, and I think he would make like 11 bucks a week. And uh, I would send him out in snowstorms and everything at eight and a half to deliver papers. And in my heart, I'm like, oh, man, I, maybe I should go with him. But then I remember doing that as a kid. Five, five o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, I'd go deliver papers. I'd go to school. I'd come home. I'd deliver more papers after school. So I thought, this is going to be good for him. But he, he got his 11 bucks, and I sat him down, and I said, okay, Josiah, now that you're a working man, I want you to know that it costs your mother and I a lot of money to raise you, feed you, clothe you, send you to Christian school and everything else. So I said, I, I think it's fair that you should start paying room and board. And I said, here's, what I'm, here's the proposal I'm going to make. You're going to pay me 90% of your wages, and you can take the other 10%, and you can blow it on whatever you want. So he would be left with what, like a buck ten after a week's work? And I just kind of let it sink in for a little bit. And he's just looking at me with these big eyes. Okay, Dad. <laughs> and then I said, now I do have an alternative plan if you want to hear it. He's like, yeah, I want to hear your alternative. I said, well, how about this? How about you keep all your money, but you have to promise me to spend your money in the following manner. Number one, you will give the first 10% of your income to your church as your tithe. Number two, you will save 50% of your income, and every year or two when that money builds up, you can come to me and ask me if you want to make a big purchase. And the other 40% you can spend on candy or bike parts mm -hmm. or whatever it is that's of interest. You're like, I'll take option B, yeah. right? <laughs> so because, because of, the reason why I did that is I wanted, I wanted to incentivize him to actually spend his money biblically. Tithing, saving, spending. Those are the three silos. So all of our kids have done that, and they're all pretty good with their money, actually, because we, we taught them, and we did that with every kid when they got a job. Option A, you can be irresponsible, and I'll take it all. Mm -hmm. Option B, here's your three silos. So um, that economic principle, I didn't just pull it out of the air. I pulled it out of Scripture. Right. Uh, in terms of daily devotions, reading, praying, whatever area, dating, um, all of these things, we would talk about them from a biblical perspective. So that's Deuteronomy 6 in practice. And then, of course, in Ephesians 6, that's added to it, but also that idea, especially directed to fathers, you know, don't provoke your child to wrath. Like, don't over-parent your kids. You don't need to cross every T and dot every yeah. I and discipline right. every little infraction, yeah. right? Like, we are living in a broken world. Um, my view has always been, here's kind of the top 10 things you do or don't do, and I will discipline those hard. The rest of the stuff, I'm actually a pretty hands-off dad. Our kids mm -hmm. never had curfews. It was like, what time should I be home? You should be home at a time that I like. Mm -hmm. well, what time is that? I'm not gonna tell you, but you'll know if you break it. That's right. <laughs> so exercise some wisdom, right? Yes. So what I wanted to do, and not giving them curfews, and uh, there might have been a couple times when they had a curfew if we were going someplace the next day or whatever, 
but I would, I would want them to develop wisdom to say, you know what, looking at the clock, all factors considered, I should probably be home. It's church the next day or school the next day or whatever. But if it's a Friday night and they're out at McDonald's with the young people, I'm not going to call, why aren't you home by 10? I couldn't care less if you get home at midnight because I think that's a valuable investment for you to be with your friends. So many things, I never got on my kids about their haircuts. You know, some parents, oh, my kid has blue hair, it's the end of the world. Who cares, okay? I would just tease them into my way of. <laughs> <laughs> but there are certain things I, I just never, I don't, I, I just, I didn't want to get into um, the weeds. I wanted to keep it high level. Yes. Here's the things that we, we absolutely will die for as a family. The rest of the stuff, whatever. So you don't want to overparent. So I would, I would say, much like you probably see in the way I pastor this church, I am dogmatic and extremely intense about an inner circle of things. And the rest of the stuff, I'm pretty hands off. I'm pretty laid back. You know, I allow for a lot of flexibility in terms of ministries and expression and musical style, all this kind of stuff. But the core things, I won't, I won't um, uh, fudge on at all. And I think that principle should also be seen in the way Christians parent their kids, hard on the main things, and a little more loose on the secondary issues. So here's the truth about some of these things. One of our kids did come home too late one time, I believe with Riley back there in the sound. <laughs> that could be true. He's... And he ended up having a curfew for a while. Mm. And what really, that, happened with the, what really happened with the, the paper route was this. Aaron uh, said he felt bad for the kid that had to go deliver the newspapers in the middle of a snowstorm. But that was on Thursday nights, and he took off to Cambridge on Thursday nights to go and teach at the Bible college. So I was at home with his child that had to go out in the snow to deliver papers with four younger children. And so I would be the one helping him pack the papers and drag four of my little kids out there with him to go and deliver. So we were all delivering these papers together because I felt bad for him. She tends to have a longer memory for offenses than I do. I don't remember it. It wasn't an offense, it was just the reality. <laughs> this is what was happening. I know of a friend that showed up at our house last night after mom and dad were in bed to uh, take our daughter for a drive. <laughs> yeah, our youngest just bought her first car. She so did she, call me and ask if that was okay. What time does she work till? <laughs> yeah, so whatever time it was, she calls, can I pop by Loren's place to show her my new car? Yep. Like, whatever. They went for a ride, but again, there, there's, a, there's a level of trust there. There's a level of mm -hmm. responsibility. I'm, I'm more concerned about who she's with and where she's at rather than how yeah. late she gets home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, it, and along those lines, there was a question that came in about what you would say to parents who are watching their teenagers um, start to make wrong choices, even though they have raised them with discipline and um, raised them to go a specific direction, how do you respond even with, you know, certain forms of discipline are not working, teenagers are not learning, um, do you just let them face the consequences of their actions? How do you respond to that? What would you say? Yeah, I, I think you need to weigh out the, the intensity of the problem that you're having maybe with a teenage child. So for example, if it's something not directly moral or maybe destructive to their entire life, like let's say they're, they're just not putting effort into school, okay? 
Um, that's a problem because many of the opportunities that you will be um, awarded in life does in some way, shape, or form relate to your, your training, your education, how well you did, how responsible you are. But at the end of the day, it's not really an, an eternity thing. So if I want my kid to get A's or B's and they're getting C's or D's, and I'm like, they're, I know this child can get A's or B's, they're just not putting the effort in. Mm -hmm. You can have conversations about that, but I'm less likely to sweat that. I'm more likely to say, look, I wanna warn you, you're better than this, you're not using your, your time, talents, your treasures to the honor and glory of God to the max, and you need to fix this problem. But at the end of the day, if you wanna flunk out, I'm still getting up and enjoying my life and doing my thing and fulfilling my responsibilities, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. There's gonna be, maybe be the removal of, um, of favors or priorities that I might otherwise give you, but I'm, I'm not gonna let that rock my boat as much as as a father that's kinda gonna bother me and irk me. But let's say, for example, I have a Christian child that's dating an unbeliever. Now you have a major problem. Mm. You know, this could affect the whole trajectory of their life, your future grandkids, their relationship with Christ, on and on and on. So the way I would handle that, obviously I'd be praying about it and mentally digesting it a lot, but it would start, for me it would start with a very intense, very fatherly conversation that is not taking place in the heat of the moment. It's probably gonna be, hey, we have something we need to talk to you about, I'd like to go out for a coffee and sit down and digest this. It's gonna be a very intense, kind of counseling-related, straightforward conversation where I'm pleading and warning and chastising and reminding. And I, I remember when I was uh, 17, I started to date a, a non-believer. And uh, my mom handled it really well. She uh, could have said, Aaron, you're not going out. I don't want you around this girl anymore. You can forget it. And I probably would have reacted and said, you know, buzz off. But she wrote me a letter. and. I don't remember how many pages it was, but in my, in my head, it was probably like 10 pages long. And I remember coming home from a date with this girl, we were just starting to date, we went out a few times, and it was this ominous letter on my bed. And I just, I read through it, and I could, I could sense my mother's heart in it, and it was very biblical. That's the last time I ever went out with that girl. So that, that was a, a check mark in my mom's favor. So having those like intense, very personal, uh, treating them like young adults mm -hmm. conversations yeah. is often very effective. What you don't want to do is remain silent. Do not remain silent. Identify the elephant in the room. And then if it's necessary, my dad left when I was uh, 10. Parents split up. So there was another time when I was a teenager where I was um, getting mouthy with my mom. You know, I was probably... 16, you know, I'm feeling like a man. I don't need to listen to my mom. So one day I came home and my two, we didn't have a youth pastor at the time in that church, but essentially two men in the church that were leading the youth group were sitting at the dinner table. I was like, what is this? My mom just kind of left the room and these guys tore a few strips off me. <laughs> it cleaned up my act. Wow. So if necessary, um, soliciting the help of other godly people to have a conversation with your child if you feel it's a little bit out of control. Where that would be irresponsible is if you have never had the conversation first. Mm, yeah. It's like the parent that doesn't discipline their child that drags them into Blake Hill's office and says, I got a problem with my kid, you deal with it. Right. It's not that. 
but um, there's something very effective about bringing outsiders in at times to have a conversation with a rebellious teenager. Um, so those, those would be some pieces of advice that I think have been helpful for us. Yeah. I'd say the other thing is um, just to honestly look at your home life, your own spiritual life, and how you're actually disciplining your kids and ask if there is inconsistencies or a lack of conviction there. And I think sometimes Christian parents, church parents can think they're being consistent, but they're actually overlooking some really significant parts. One of the things that I think Aaron and I have seen over and over again, particularly even when we were in youth ministry ourselves, was parents who would uh, allow their kids to miss youth group so that they could play sports or miss Sunday morning church so that they could play sports. And they'd always come up with a good reason or a justification, but it just never works out well. Or moms in particular, or I guess fathers are all involved in that too, but allowing girls to wear immodest clothes that are in style and seem not to be a big deal, but it is a big deal. And so we have to be very intentional yeah. about raising our kids to be, our girls in particular, to be modest in what we allow for them to post on social media, the pictures they post of themselves. And um, just really, really thinking through some of these things. Are we really parenting the way the Bible teaches? Or have we actually fallen into the trap of parenting more like what the world does so that our kids will fit in and feel good about themselves and not feel excluded? Uh, as much as somehow, by God's grace, I don't think we ever, um, our, our kids viewed us as legalistic, particularly in, in certain areas. Maybe we could have leaned in that direction at occasions, but we never allowed our kids to make a pattern of missing youth group or church. And I remember even there was probably twice that uh, Kezia said she didn't want to go to youth group because her friends weren't going to be there. And she was a shyer, quieter girl, and it would have been easy for me to say, oh yeah, poor Casey, I don't want to have to put her, you know, make her go to youth group if, if her friends aren't going to be there. But I absolutely didn't let her get away with that. Like, you're not stopping youth because you don't have your best friends there, right? Like, there's more to youth than your friends. Of course, teenagers having friends, Christian friends, is super, super important. But if they're not there, you still have to go. It's not just about that. There's an opportunity for you to make new friends or to look at, you know, who else might be lonely or needing a friend. And so we just wouldn't allow for that. And for some people that might sound legalistic, but I think having some of those strong convictions and following through on them is, is super valuable. And, and kids pick up on the most subtle things. And if we're missing even the most subtle things in our home, they pick up on that. And none of us are gonna be perfect, and so we've, we've all missed things. Mm -hmm. But when we catch them, we always have the opportunity to correct them. Yeah, and I, I would just say, that's, those are good reminders. We would also say, and we still do it now, even as adults, we really encourage our kids, when they enter church, enter youth group, enter a classroom, to look around and say, not so much like what can I get out of this, but who needs to be blessed by my presence or my ministry or my words. So like there's something, there's something very off-putting in my mind about seeing a person in a group by themselves. Like that just really bothers me deeply. 
when a person is excluded. I can't, I can't handle that. And so I would say to my kids, you know, you, you, you're, you're my children, you're the pastor's kids. People know who you are, okay? They, you, you're well connected, you were raised in this church from almost from infancy, three of them were raised from infancy. You don't need to go to youth group and, and then come home and say, oh, there's no one there my age. I couldn't care less. When I went to youth group, there was me and one other boy. That was our youth group, two of us. And the guy that was closest to me in age, check this out, because I went to, at the time I was going to church without my family, was 35 years old. And I was like 13 or 14, and I loved that church. Because somewhere along the line, someone instilled this idea in my mind. You don't need to go to church and look around and say, well, who, who looks like me, who acts like me, who's my skin color, who thinks like me, who has kids in my age group. That's not even on my mind. I want to go minister and bless other people, and in that process, I'm blessed. So we, wanted to, we instilled early in the kids this idea that you're not a consumer. You're not a client. You're not a customer at the church. You're part of a spiritual family. You don't pick your siblings, your parents, and you don't pick your church friends. You, your responsibility is to go and to serve. And when we serve, we actually are blessed in return. So just little lessons like that you kind of bring up and con- you're not talking about it all the time. It's not like on a family rules sheet in the wall. It's just conversations you have that helps to shape their view of what it means to be a believer. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Okay, so clearly from this conversation tonight, Aaron is the more permissive parent. The more what? <laughs> the more permissive parent. Clearly. Correct? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was meant to be funny. <laughs> Well, actually, I do want to... I've been off of staff too long. I do want to comment on that. So, (laughs) I would say, when it comes to, like, conviction, one of the things I really appreciate about my wife is that she can be so intensely convicted about something that maybe is not such a big deal for me that that she's, she's able to successfully pass that conviction on to our kids. You know, like... I don't want to. I don't want to be too. I don't want to get myself into trouble with the women in the room and the moms. Nor do I want to be too stereotypical. But I would say that conviction, conviction of goodness and righteousness, good and evil, was something I received more from my mom, even before my parents split up. That was more a gift that my mom gave me, and I personally think Susie has given more of that to our kids, like a heightened sensitivity to right and wrong. I probably have contributed more through my words, this is right, this is wrong, and explaining to them why. Mm-hmm. So I verbally passed truth on to them. She's convictionally passed truth on to them, if that makes sense. And other couples might, might be the other way around, depending on the personality. But, um, yeah, certain things Susie has historically would be, um, you know, more convicted, convicted about because she was raised probably in a stricter home than I was. But when it comes to right and wrong, truth and lies, I'd be, I'd be all over that. Can I tell them the Lego story? Okay. So my wife <laughs> is ethnically a German Mennonite. And Mennonites, historically are what are called pacifists when it comes to violence and war. They don't go to war, they'll leave the country first. They don't take up arms, you know, they don't punch back if someone punches them. That's historically 
a, a characteristic in that people group. I'm not like that. We got into lots of fist fights as kids, beat each other up, and so forth and so on. Um, and so when I was a little kid, I remember finding old chair rails and sticks and two by fours, and we'd build all these guns and bazookas. We'd go around the neighborhood pretending to shoot each other. So when, when we had our, our son, Josiah, and he was a few years old and he wanted to get into Lego, we bought this Lego set. And I, I thought it was hilarious at the time because Susie opens this Lego set. In the Lego set, there's like little knives about you know, a half an inch long and little, little guns that will fit in the hands of the little Lego man. She's like, I am not allowing my son to play with guns and knives. She starts pulling these things out of the Lego set. <laughs> They're this long. So I thought that was hilarious, and I think when Josiah started making his own guns out of sticks and stuff, she just figured, oh, well, forget it. This mm -hmm. fight's not worth fighting. <laughs> I'll never forget I, that, though. She instilled yeah. within them a conviction. Don't be violent. <laughs> that's, that's what I was mentioning earlier, that I think mothers have more of an adjustment to make with raising boys. I, I've yeah. watched that with Ange, too, with the guns It's thing. great for kids, by the way, to be raised by a man and a woman. That's right. Right? I mean, Absolutely. I wasn't. Well, when I was little, I was. But I, I know I missed out because I didn't have, you know, a father in the house from the age yeah. of 10 onward. And the Lord can work in those situations. Like, don't sweat it if that's your situation. But as I have observed our kids observing us, I think it's a gift for them to be able to observe two very different personalities, yeah. a man and a woman who right. are... Who, who are in love with the same God and have the same basic convictions, but are very, very different people. I think that's a beautiful thing. And we don't, we don't need to be the same as fathers and mothers in order to be a blessing to our children. Yeah, and it is important, I think, just to note, um, it, it's important for mom and dad to uh, be on the same team in, in the discipline area and raising kids in front of the kids. Make sure it yeah. doesn't look like you're divided. And if you're not on the same team, who makes that call? Me. That's right. That's so there was probably two or three times when we, we couldn't decide about a, a long-term disciplinary issue, and it wasn't a fight or anything. We just had differences of opinion. And, uh, you, you know, you talk it through from one end to the other. If you can't decide, what does the dad do? He says, okay, I'm, I'm going to go. I, I would tell Susie this. I'll, I'll go pray on it, and ultimately I'll come back with a decision. Mm -hmm. And then I come back with a decision. And my wife was always super cool with that, especially if I would say, and by the way, I'm prepared to stand before God for the consequences of yes. this decision. Then yeah. she's like, okay, not my problem anymore, it's yours. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of how we, that didn't happen very often, but you know, once in a while you, you, you can't agree on the intensity of discipline, so you, yeah. you, the father has to spiritually lead out. Right, right. Whether he's right or wrong, he leads yeah, out, so. he's accountable for it. That's right. Yeah. yeah that's good. Mm -hmm. So you were going to that wasn't actually the question, was it? <laughs> so <clears throat> what I was going to ask was, so your children, you raise them in the Christian faith, right? You mentioned that they each place their faith in Christ at a young age. So do you think your children not rebelling had anything to do with your parenting style? Did that play a part in it? If so, what? And what do you think was the reason that your kids didn't go the other way? Because we do see, especially being a pastor, pastor's wife, you see some families where their children run the opposite way, and it's heartbreaking. So why do you think maybe yeah. your kids did not go that way? 
Do you want to comment on that? Well, definitely, like this sounds just Christianese, but it's God's grace. You, you definitely recognize it's, it's God's grace that, that kept your kids. But one of the things I was also thinking about is that um, by God's grace, he also put Aaron and I together who are very, in many ways, very opposite personalities, which I think was good for our kids. And there was, we, we helped balance each other out so that there was a balanced parenting uh, perspective going on in many ways. And so we were opposites that balanced each other out. But on the other hand, we were also very, very united in being very intentional about our first priority was to raise our kids to know the Lord. And even before we had kids, I specifically remember, I think we, we must have been driving home from one of our parents' homes, probably my parents' home. Uh, we were driving out of St. Thomas, and for some reason I just had this strong burden in my life about giving birth to a child that didn't know Christ. And I remember sharing that with Aaron, and we decided to pray right then and there that uh, we wouldn't have any kids that didn't know Christ. And mm. it, it was just a way to just really trust God with it, and I really yeah. did at that moment. And um, so, yeah, it's God's grace that saved them, God's grace that helped them to continue. We certainly didn't, you know, do everything perfectly. I can look back at things that I'd like to do again if I could just have that chance maybe one day from a grandma. But um, by God's grace, he, he helps you through that. And I think as the kids see us, our relationship, like our, our kids are probably because we've talked to them a lot about Christian life, we help them process things. They also learn to process us and evaluate us. They, they've seen us grow and develop in our faith, which I think has been very valuable for them. Uh, they see that we're not the same people that we were 15 years ago. We've grown and matured in our faith, and at times we've had to repent, and it's been, it's been good. So I think all of that together, so yeah, certainly, first and foremost, we give God the credit, but we also give him the credit for what he's done through us and in us, which has impacted them. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, sovereign grace of God, praying, if you're believing couples, you, sh you should be praying before your children are born that they would yeah. come to know Christ. Obviously, the, we're, we, it's, it's actually wrong uh, for Christians to think, oh, it's just all God, mm -hmm. just all God. Now, the Christian faith is an imitative faith. There's numerous examples of this in yes. the New Testament where one believer calls another believer to imitate him where um, you know, Paul calls Timothy and Titus his sons in the faith. So we don't wanna do the let go and let God thing. We wanna pray that the Lord would do what only God can do, but we also wanna take full responsibility for our decisions. And there's also something beautiful about apologizing to your kids for the things you've done that are wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah. So there's nothing wrong with ministering, pastoring, parenting out of your strengths and your weaknesses instead of trying to pretend that you got it all together because you don't. Right. Um, and just you know, trusting in the Lord, looking for wise counsel. But I would say this one thing, which, which is really, really, really important. From a human perspective, it's probably one of the top most important things. And that is that your ability to raise godly children that love the Lord and want to serve him is largely tied to the church you go to. I am so, so thankful for the many people in this church that have taken an interest in my kids in ways that I didn't have the time for because I was very busy, especially when the kids were young, 
or that I just have the capacity for. I love it when my kids are other Christians' homes, being mentored by them. That's why it was really important for me to have our kids in youth group and uh, surrounded by godly people. And again, it doesn't have to be this church. Like, God can use a variety of different kinds of churches. Again, I was raised in very small churches with no functioning youth groups. But if you take your kids to a church they don't want to be at, where they're not being disciplined and challenged and taught and fed and no one's taking an interest in your kids, or you've made church optional by your conduct, it's a hard, hard, that's a hard pit to climb out of. So um, I remember saying one time, it takes a village to raise a child, and someone's like, don't say that, that's a Hillary Clinton line. <laughs> like, no, it's not a Hillary Clinton line. I, I looked it up, I can't remember where it came from. But the idea is, is, I know that I didn't raise my kids all by myself with my wife. Christian school teachers, youth workers, musicians in the church have take, t- took, took a lot of interest in our kids and were a huge blessing to them, and I'm so thankful for that. I want my kids to be exposed to other Christians as much as possible. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, thank you very much for helping us tonight. So we are out of time. Um, can I ask the two of you to close us out in prayer and sure. pray for all of us? Yeah. I'll start. Father God, we, we thank you for the long and varied lineage of people, most of whom we've never met, who, whose influence, whose words, whose teachings for the good or the bad have influenced the people we are. In particular, Lord, though, we're, we're very grateful for, the, for godly pastors, youth workers, maybe grandparents or great-grandparents that instilled certain Christian values or perspectives or mindsets into our own families of origin. And it's just kind of a cool thing to think about how many people have influenced the people that we've become. And we want to do a good job, Lord, in assessing our own strengths and weaknesses and passing on positive influences to the next generation. And where we fail, we pray that you would accommodate and be gracious and bring other people in to correct um, any attitudes or ideas that we've falsely passed on. So we thank you, Lord, that there is a lot of people that you use to to, to raise and influence us And we know that uh, as parents, while we have primary responsibility over our children, that you will use a lot of people to influence the people they they become. But most importantly, we pray that your spirit would just move in the hearts of our children and maybe even future children. And that uh, you would give us strength and wisdom and courage. And when we do fail, we pray, Lord, that we would take responsibility for that. And starting today, act differently and then look for opportunities to influence the next generation. Uh, there, there are many kids in this world that don't have parents, and we pray that there might be opportunities for us to influence them for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you've created uh, marriage, and that uh, together as husbands and wives, we can pour uh, out into our children, and while we're very different, we know that you'll use, you'll use us in different ways to shape the next generation. We also pray for single parents, you would just give them an extra measure of grace and wisdom to uh, raise their children and that they wouldn't feel alone, that they would sense your presence. And we just pray for your blessings upon this class. We're thank you for the, thankful for the time and energy that Pastor Andrew puts into teaching here every week. 
And for those who are able to attend tonight, just richly encourage them in Jesus' name. Amen. Heavenly Father, I just uh, come before you as well. We're so thankful that you are the perfect Heavenly Father and that you do show us how to love and discipline our children. I pray particularly for all the moms or future moms in this uh, room today. I pray that you all really bless and encourage each one of them, help them to first and foremost search their own heart and continue to allow their own hearts to be um, transformed into your image. If there's um, insecurities or fears or other sins in their life, I pray that they will first and foremost confess those before you and find healing and hope so that when they do have the opportunity to raise their children, that they will be strong in the Lord, that they will be ready and prepared and surrendered to uh, raise their children for the glory of God, fully submissive and fully obedient to you. And Lord, when um, there's been mistakes made and we've all failed as moms, I pray that you extend grace and forgiveness and uh, renew us and uh, continue to give us perseverance to move forward and to continue to raise our children for the glory of God. In Jesus' name. Thank you.